Welcome to the Serious Azure podcast. My name is Petya Petrova. I'm the host of this podcast. This is our first of three episodes we recorded with no other than Professor Robert Stebbins. I am, of course, joined by Sam Elkington and Kat Branch. In this first episode, we track the history of the Serious Azure perspective. Enjoy. Welcome to the Serious Azure podcast. My name is Petya Petrova. I'm your host for today's podcast. I am joined by our regular podcast contributors, Dr. Sam Elkington and Kat Branch. Sam is from Teesside University. He is our serious leisure expert. Welcome, Sam. Thank you very much, Petya. And I might not be the only expert on serious leisure in the room today. Ah, spoiler, spoiler, Sam. <laughs> Um, thank you. We are glad to have you here and your expertise, Sam. Um, we are also joined by Kat Branch. Kat leads the University of the West of England Centre for Music. Welcome, Kat. Hello, Petia. I'm very excited about this episode today. Uh, aren't we all? Um, thank you, Kat. And just for our listeners, we often abbreviate the University of the West of England to UE. In this podcast, we share stories about our leisure pursuits, our passions, hobbies, and interests. We reflect on our attempts to successfully, or not so successfully, balance work and leisure time, and we draw on insights from the serious leisure perspective and the vast literature on it. Today's episode is a slightly different one. We are very excited to welcome today our esteemed guest and the person behind much of what is written about the serious leisure perspective, Professor Robert A. Stebbins from the University of Calgary. Sam, would you please introduce Professor Stebbins to our audience and why we're so very excited to have him as a guest to our serious leisure podcast? It would be my pleasure, Petia. Thank you very much. Okay, so it's my pleasure to introduce to you, uh, Professor Robert A. Stebbins. Professor Stebbins is Professor of Sociology in the Faculty of Social Sciences at the University of Calgary. His research interests in leisure date back to the early 1970s, the time when he began his theoretic work on amateurs. In 1982, Professor Stebbins published the basic conceptual statement on what is now known as serious leisure. In early 1997, he published in Leisure Studies a similar statement on casual leisure. Between 1975 and the present time, he has published a range of theoretical and empirical articles, chapters, books, and various other publications on amateur, hobbyist, and career volunteer leisure pursuits. A third category of leisure, namely project-based leisure, was defined and discussed in Leisure Studies in 2005. Combined, the concepts of serious casual and project-based leisure form the serious leisure perspective, which you've been hearing a lot of on this, uh, on this podcast. Now, perhaps the most established and theoretical framework for studying leisure, drawing on a body of empirical work that spans over four decades. In this time, Professor Stebbins has written in excess of 50 books, with most centering exclusive or substantially on one aspect or another of the serious casual or project-based aspects of the serious ledger perspective. 
So welcome to Professor Stebbins. Um, we're going to be referring to yourself as Bob, of course, as you are known the world over. Uh, and just for our listeners, just uh, so you're, you're aware that we, everybody that I know around the world calls Professor Stebbins, Bob Stebbins. So, um, and we shall be following that trend. Okay, so there you have it. We have our esteemed colleague and guest this evening. Thank you, Sam, and welcome, Bob, to the Serious Leisure Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here or there um, in as much as we are talking across a, a seven-hour uh, time zone um, the deficiency, uh, which means it's getting close to dinner time where you are. <coughs> it's mid-morning for me. <coughs> Anyhow. Welcome. It, it's lovely to have you here, and um, it's lovely to be able to connect um, through um, the use of technology, even though it can be so quirky sometimes. Um, and yes, it is close to dinner time here, and it's um, um, the beginning of the day for you. Um, and we have a um, really interesting time ahead of us talking about serious leisure. I will pass on to Sam. Because uh, Sam, in his introduction, didn't mention that um, he has written a book with you on serious leisure. So you're, you're familiar with each other. You know each other quite well. Um, so I will pass on a lot of this discussion um, to, to Sam to lead uh, today for us. Sam. Thank you, Petia. Yes, of course, we, we, we have written a book, Serious Leisure Perspective, an introduction. Um, but of course, Bob has written many, many, many more. And we're going to hear, I'm sure, a lot about the different aspects of, of that writing today. But really, the question is, are we sitting comfortably? Because we're in for a really interesting conversation. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, Bob and I have spoken at length many, many times, as you might imagine. Uh, but it's great, uh, an opportunity uh, to share that, these conversations with Bob today. So, Bob, I think the best place for us to start is, could you please... Tell us about how the idea of serious leisure and later the serious leisure perspective came into being. Okay, the start was a bit inauspicious. Uh, I arrived at the University of Texas at Arlington um, and from eight years of teaching at Memorial University of Newfoundland. And there in the uh, University of Texas at Arlington, I soon got an invitation from my department head to organize a session of papers on the sociology of art for a small Southwestern United States um, meeting of sociologists that was going to take place in Arlington. So well, all right, I'll do that. The reason that I got the invitation is that I'd written a few papers on music, um, but on jazz music, not on classics. And I thought, well, I've got to get something more on music than jazz because the jazz musicians I interviewed were mostly professional. They were making a living at, uh, uh, of sorts uh, at this music. <clears throat> so I, um, I went to a dictionary, actually an encyclopedia. And the Encyclopedia of the Social Sciences published in the 1930s finally found a definition of amateur in sociological terms. Well, it turned out to be it was no definition at all. It was, in fact, a history of the idea. 
useful, useful reading, but it didn't tell me what an amateur is. And I scrounged around um, in various books and articles, and nobody was telling me essentially what an amateur is. And that's what I wanted to write about in the music side. So I thought, well, all right, <clears throat> it's up to me to uh, um, craft my own definition. And I rather like that work. Um, I had done it before, and I thought, okay, we'll do that. But I'm going to go to um, music first. And so I read a stack of books and articles by amateur musicians. Um, they play a lot, but they write a lot. So um, it's a um, uh, an interesting situation. I got a lot of ideas out of that. And I decided, well, this has got to be continued because it became clear that amateurs were hardly limited to music um, or the arts, but of course we had amateurs in sport, science, and entertainment. So there was this quartet of spheres of activity that I really needed to look at before I could say anything uh, in print about amateurs. Um, well, it didn't quite work out that way, but I did, while still in Texas, study people in theater, amateurs in science, and amateurs in sport. The sport was baseball, the science was archaeology. And um, now I had four um, sets of activities, types of amateurs, and then I moved to Calgary and finished off another four two in, uh, one more in science, namely astronomy, uh, then another in um, uh, sport, Canadian football, and then two in entertainment, namely entertainment magicians and stand-up comics. So that became the 15-year project uh, and was reported in 1992 in a book entitled uh, amateurs, professionals, and serious leisure. The term having been introduced, as Sam noted, uh, in 1982. So then at that point, um, it began to catch on. Uh, it, was, um, it was something the field obviously needed because the distinction had been drawn between serious and casual leisure. And the forms that um, uh, or the types that were being uh, examined were, of course, amateurs, hobbyists, and volunteers. And recognizing that volunteers can also be casual measure. And so uh, the scope of the field was beginning to widen. And uh, it was becoming clear that I was onto something that <clears throat> hadn't happened in leisure studies or many other fields, namely a broad set of concepts that would knit together the field, uh, their interrelationship uh, of these types uh, and how some types feed other types and vice versa and how they're interrelated as in the idea of optimal leisure lifestyle. So that, um, uh, 
led me to try to flesh things out. I then, now in, uh, in Calgary, in Canada, I uh, <clears throat> was uh, uh, busy attempting to get some hobbyists. So I did uh, study again, and all of this is um, participant observation um, and grounded theoretic construction. So uh, I looked at um, mountain river kayakers, uh, mountain climbers, and the mountain snowboarders. <clears throat> so we had three hobbies. And I made up a fourth by studying barbershop singers. And, uh, you know, these are as different as chalk and cheese, but they all fit into the um, uh, serious leisure perspective which by now had become a bit of a, uh, a, a, a cross to bear. People say, yeah, but these isn't just about serious leisure. Um, and that is when I put out the book in 19, I'm sorry, 2007, uh, called um, Serious Leisure uh, Perspective for Our Time, and dumped them all into the idea of perspective. Serious Leisure gets top billing only because it began the show and not because of, um, uh, it, you know, it was superior. Because at this point, I realized it is not superior. Um, it uh, is um, very much a, uh, a toss-up as to which is most important. Sure, well-being uh, is basically achieved through self-fulfillment and serious leisure. But sometimes we need a break. Here comes the casual leisure. So, and sometimes we need to do things with people whom we love or respect, and it's more casual leisure. So not everybody's into football or magic or what have you. And so it began to point out that leisure has this large scale um, uh, applicability in everyday life. And in all of that, it was clear that we were talking about activities. And um, that was an important, um, I thought, an important insight that um, we in sociology were used to using role as a concept. But all, a lot of amateur activities aren't particularly roles. So taking a nap in the afternoon is not a role, maybe in Mexico, but not in many other countries, uh, the siesta, or um, getting a back rub, both casual leisure, but not a role. So moreover, when you call it an activity, you then begin to um, bring in important notions like taste for the activity. So I soon learned, especially from my archeologists, um, they would tell their friends, well, my leisure is you know, digging in the dirt and uncovering arrowheads and uh, small artifacts with uh, the um, now indigenous people. Um, <clears throat> so, in uh, its that sounds like too much work for me. But for the archaeologist, it was fun. Indeed, it was fulfilling. So, taste is an issue. And um, 
Uh, I can quite see it. Not everybody's going to go in for snowboarding. Uh, it's not their thing. And uh, it's um, uh, taste and then agency. It was very clear that people had to say, well, I like archaeology. I'm going to find out how, how to do more of it. Um, and they scrounge around and discover there's a society in town devoted to archaeological interests. Uh, for example, <clears throat> I got a guitar in my hand. I don't know how to play it, but I like it. It's fun. It's like fun. And um, what do they do? They bring up a teacher and get some lessons on this instrument. So activity, agency, um, <clears throat> and taste go together. And they sometimes are a role, but often it's not, they're not a role, but they're very motivational. And um, they plug in nicely to the larger society. So if you're interested, for instance, in um, <clears throat> downhill skiing, well, first thing you're gonna learn is that there are resorts to go to, ski hills to go to, uh, that facilitate this interest. And you learn about how much it costs, you learn how to get there, and you learn how to buy the equipment and maintain it. So there's a social world involved in all of this. <clears throat> now, this orientation um, began, um, as they say, 1973, and then through field work and through discussion with colleagues and through some of them writing, um, this whole perspective gets fleshed out and we're hardly done. <clears throat> um, in 2002, the Leisure Studies Association invited me to um, contribute short articles in the newsletter, today a blog, but um, uh, when invited, it was simply a newsletter. And that turned out to be a very important um, asset for furthering the uh, serious layer perspective. Um, and um, because I could write, as it were, drafts of the ideas, get some feedback. Sometimes it would get published uh, in a journal as. Uh, pretty much as they were written for the uh, the newsletter. Other times it get expanded or folded into a book, uh, one thing or another. <clears throat> so the 60th uh, article will come up in, I think it's July of this year. So it's been going on quite some time and has been very valuable uh, as a sort of um, uh, off-Broadway type of, um, of uh, uh, interest that could enable me to polish a bit the ideas. Also important in the development of all of this was the um, chance meeting of Jenna Hartel, um, student at the time in library and information science uh, at the University of California at Los Angeles. And um, 
we bumped into each other in an elevator in Philadelphia um, at a sociological conference. And um, I didn't know him. She knew me by, by sight. So we got out of the elevator and went straight for coffee. And um, her orientation toward information and knowledge was something I needed. And she pointed out what you do need, and I'm willing to help. Um, talk about agency. Um, she said, you got to have a website. Well, I don't know anything about websites. I use them all the time, but I, I, I can't build one. I'll take care of that. So in 2007, uh, we launched the uh, Serious Leisure Perspective website <clears throat> at www.seriousleisureoneword.net. And um, that's been expanding. Uh, it has a vigorous bibliography. It announces new publications, including new books, announces awards, um, all sorts of stuff. And um, there is a summary on it of uh, the Serious Leisure Perspective, as well as um, a list of scales. There's now a dozen scales measuring aspects of serious, casual uh, leisure. So uh, as soon as this stuff got into the bloodstream of, um, of leisure studies, tourism, and um, <clears throat> events and sports and things like that. There's a lot of quantitative people out there who immediately thought this should have a scale. So the first scale I was involved in kind of as the um, conceptual foundation of it all, but to James Gould was a PhD student at Clemson University in South Carolina and um, he cooked it up uh, to produce the series leisure inventory measure. And um, that's been translated into a few other languages. And so that became another arm and it attracted a lot of people. And if they didn't have a scale, they wanted they invented their own. Um, the film named Wan in China, um, every time he goes to do research, he cranks out a new scale. And sometimes he's doing research within the serious leisure perspective. So <clears throat> um, what's nice about it is that these, um, these, these uh, research approaches generate huge amounts of data. And um, those data uh, are useful in validating the uh, concepts that have become a serious leisure perspective. So no one to have concepts that they don't have verifiable anchorage in reality. Now they do uh, through, of course, grounded theoretic research, but such research is also quite limited. Whereas if you do a scale and, you know, get 2,000 people to answer a questionnaire, um, as long as your concepts are solid, um, you, you'll get some good data. Uh, and of course, as long as the, the measure itself is solid. So it, it was a nice division of labor, the way it ought to go. Get your concepts first, 
get them properly anchored in um, uh, field research and then <clears throat> get the scales developed and uh, surveys and so on so you can spread out and get even more anchorage. So I think today we have a perspective that uh, is, um, it's got its weaknesses because it's in leisure, so um, uh, this is so variable. And by no means all of it's been covered. Uh, anyway, this is uh, how we have moved along. And um, let me just add that we've moved out into um, positive psychology. We managed to get the term leisure into the lexicon of at least some light psychologists. Um, I handed out a cheek sent me high on the subject. And of all places, Portugal at an annual, actually, the second world conference on positive psychology. And um, <clears throat> I have tackled, um, and probably nobody knows this, the subject of play and leisure and how they fit together. And it's been two fields have been talking past each other for several decades. And um, uh, I think they're still continuing that bad habit. Um, don't want to spend too much time, but um, we added along um, early in this century, a discussion of liberal arts hobbies. And basically that's the reading stuff and people who read, and there are a lot of them um, <clears throat> on the book, The Committed Reader, that uh, I have uh, uh, written in 2013, gives an idea about how these little arts hobbies uh, work. Needless to say, it's a favorite with the library and information science people. So. But that's the, that's the interdisciplinarity of this field. So, um, otherwise I have more recently taken to uh, amplifying um, critical concepts like social world. Now there's a small monograph on the subject. And um, lifestyles, that book has just come out, but it relates very well to how serious and casual leisure differ. And um, that gets expressed over uh, the lifestyles that people lead. And finally, because it's always been a pain in the neck, non-work obligations, um, they're there. We have three great domains in life, work, leisure, and not work obligations. And um, they're negative. If the, the positive obligations, they're leisure um, because they're attractive. But most of these obligations are things we have to do and they take up leisure time. So uh, it's good to know what they are and how to deal with them. It brings in voluntary simplicity and ideas like that. And then coming out in May 
occupational devotion. Uh, I have a book on it. It was introduced in 2004, but um, uh, occupational devotion is serious leisure for which you get paid enough to constitute a livelihood. May not be very good, but it's a livelihood. Um, and uh, so that little book uh, explores that question. Underlying all of this is what is leisure? And um, many of our colleagues have simply um, rejected the idea of even trying to define it. Um, some of them have said it can't be defined. Um, Balderdash, it certainly can be defined, but you've got to immerse yourself in the subject. And so the book, The Idea of Leisure, published in 2012, uh, gets at that. It gives a short dictionary type definition, but it spends the rest of the book as one must defining what leisure is. And uh, until you know how you can define your central subject, it'll always be elusive. You won't know. There's too much other stuff coming in. And part of that's work. If you love your work, um, then I bit the bullet as it were. Uh, you, I, I, I love my work, it must be leisure. And even if I'm making money at it. So that's a bit of a heretical statement, but nonetheless, uh, there we are. So the serious leisure perspective is a set of concepts that are interrelated and continually under interrelationship uh, that um, spans the field of leisure and brings everything into play. Um, we don't know all there is to know, and so there will be things added to that discussion, but I think the framework can handle that. Um, we can uh, introduce new activities and there will be a place, or if not, we'll invent a place. That's what the field work's all about. Um, maybe I should quit and uh, allow you a chance to breathe a bit. Uh, and uh, then, uh, so back to our sponsors. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bob. I think for, for our listeners, we have now condensed for you the five decades of history of serious leisure research into 30 minutes summary. Thank you for listening to part one of our three-part series of recordings with Professor Robert Stebbins. In part two, we talk about why leisure is not always easy and the importance of perseverance and indeed what helps us persevere with our leisure. <laughs>